All right, well, have a seat. Welcome, everybody. I'm really glad that you've come out tonight. Uh, you'll need a copy of the notes if you're first coming in. Um, we are doing a four-week midweek series, and last week we talked about unforgiveness, which I hope was helpful. Uh, this week we have uh, changed the topic from assurance and doubt to look at a Christian perspective on the attacks in Israel, which we're going to get into in a second. Um, next week, um, we are going to get into the doctrine of hell and look at that unpleasant but necessary doctrine. And then the final week, we're going to look at biblical counseling and what place it should play in the life of the local church, specifically Crosspoint. And I'm excited about that. But tonight, let's dig into our outline. Um, and I want to be, uh, I want to move this along as, as quickly as possible to leave time for questions or comments. I realize it's a school night. So I've got two headings here and then some concluding thoughts. First is a rough sketch. And when I say rough sketch, I mean a very rough sketch of the situation in the Middle East that I want to give you. And then secondly, I want us to look theologically. I want to help us understand Israel theologically that I think will help inform us how we should think about this situation. So number one, and when I say rough sketch, I mean rough sketch. Now I'm treading out in thin ice here. I am not uh, in any way a geopolitical expert. Uh, and some of what I may say tonight on this short introductory portion may, uh, may not be 100% right. And so if I'm wrong on that, um, I, I'm sorry. And I'm sure some of you may be able to correct me on that. My goal in this is not to give you uh, some geopolitical pundit view, but just to give a very broad sort of laying of the land so that the average Christian in the local church like Cross Point, who may not be very familiar with just kind of the, the players and the situation, can at least just sort of get a sense of what is going on or what the situation is. And to do that, I may show you some maps and just kind of highlight a few things. But this, I just want to be very, very broad, especially when I'm talking about the history of Israel and the history of the conflict with Israel and, um, and her Arab uh, neighbors. Uh, I, I want to just stress how, how uh, much of a non-expert I am in those geopolitical affairs and just history in that region in general. But first, there, letter A, I think we're all familiar with Israel. When we're talking about Israel tonight, in many senses, we're talking about the nation of Israel, this political entity. And I think it's important, especially maybe for some of you younger people that don't realize this, Israel, when you think of Israel, you kind of have this sense that Israel is the people of the Old Testament, we understand them to be ethnic Jews that are descendants of Abraham. We all kind of have that category. And then we don't realize that really after, during the, in the first century or so, during, during uh, the time of Christ and afterwards, there's this great, great uh, persecution of the Jews and, a, and a, a dispersion of the Jews, a diaspora where the Jews are really scattered. The ethnic Jews are scattered all throughout the world. And this, this by and large, is what is, it happens to the Jewish people for, for almost two millennia. And then, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm breezing over a great amount of important history. Uh, as a consequence of the evil of Hitler in many ways and the satanic attack, I'll get into that a little bit more so sort of generally, uh, on Israel, really all through the ages, but especially during World War II, part of what came out of World War II was the Constitution, the reconstitution, some of the peace, peace treaties 
was the reformation for the first time in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the formal reconstitution of Israel as a geopolitical entity in what is what we now know of as Israel in, in, in the Middle East. And so that just happened very, very recently. I mean, 1948. Uh, and so, I mean, a good number of people in this room were alive in 1948. And that's the birth of the modern-day ethnic, or the modern-day national Israel as a nation. And not only since that time, but long before that time, uh, there has been a tremendous amount of conflict, conflict between uh, Jew, Israel, ethnic Jews, and certainly now national uh, Israel and their Arab neighbors for various uh, political and, I would say, mostly spiritual reasons. So what is the Arab world? Well, the Arab world is uh, obviously the Arab nations and Arab peoples. Uh, Islam as a, as a religion uh, was established by Muhammad in about the 600 uh, AD time frame. So we're talking, uh, you know, five or 600 years after the time of Christ. And uh, they, the worldview, and again, I'm not an expert on Islam in any way, but I do think it's important for a person who may not be that familiar. Maybe you're just an average Christian in the church, and you just have this sense that Islam is a false religion, and you have this sense that it's kind of, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, connected in some way. These Arabic people would kind of view uh, Abraham and Jesus it would have a sort of place in the Quran and in the Islamic uh, 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 scriptures, and that's true. But we don't, under, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand because we just sort of see the radical Islam that uh, is wreaking havoc in, in, in terroristic ways in the world in many ways, is that that springs out of, uh, uh, I think, a, a, a particular um, interpretation of the, uh, the Islamic worldview which would be less spiritually minded, like the gospel and Christian scriptures are, and more politically minded, and whereas uh, the gospel and the message of the kingdom of God is more internal, working on kind of conquering the human heart and, and the kingdom advances, in a sense, spiritually. I'm not in any way negating the fact that we need to advance culturally, but Islam, in its falseness, is a much different worldview. It's much more interested in cultural domination and political domination. And so, as a result of that, some of the more extreme aspects of Islam are uh, into uh, the carrying out of what they consider to be the implications of their false text, the Quran, which is jihad or holy war against infidels. Anybody that's not a believer in an uh, uh, Allah. Uh, certainly Christians, and certainly because of a long history of belligerency between them and the Jew. Again, in, in an area where I'm not an expert at all, I do think this is something that we in America don't, just the average American doesn't necessarily have as much of an appreciation for, but I think it's very important, is that the, Islam, the Islamic world is really divided into two major groups, two different types of Muslims, the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite Muslims. The Sunnis are by far the dominant. It's about 85% of the world's Muslims are, would be categorized as Sunni, and about 15%, from what I understand, would be Shiite. But they have been 
internally. It's kind of a civil war between these two groups within Islam for centuries. And as I understand it, the origin of their dispute goes all the way back to after Muhammad, the prophet, their prophet Muhammad's death, and a dispute about who should succeed Muhammad as the leader of Islam. And so the Sunnis believed that it should be the, a political succession, whereas the Shiites believed that it should be a blood succession, one of uh, Muhammad's blood relatives. And that's about as much as I know about it. But, but it's, I think it's important for us to understand when you say Muslims or especially Islamic terrorists, there are different types, and Sunni, Sunni and Shiites are, 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 are at each other's throats, and there's a lot, there's a lot of infighting, a lot of bloody infighting that has happened through the centuries and recently between these Muslim groups. And then I think it also, just to kind of orient us a little bit, is that it helps us, I think we should understand that um, Saudi Arabia and Iran have emerged really as the two dominant Muslim countries. Saudi Arabia, I think, for their wealth and obviously geographically because of where Mecca is, and Iran also because of wealth and technology and military uh, capability to some degree. But Saudi Arabia is primarily Sunni, and, and uh, Iran is primarily Shiite. And so there is a lot of, um, a lot of struggle there's a lot of animosity between those two countries. And a lot of what's going on today uh, in the Middle East is a result of not just all the Arabs monolithically, or all of the uh, Muslims, it better said, because certainly they're Arab Christians, not just all the Muslims monolithically having one mind that they're just sort of hell-bent on destroying Israel, but they are also uh, hell-bent on, in some sense, having their version of Islam be the dominant one. And, uh, and so that causes all sorts of problems um, within Islam. And certainly they share an animosity to varying degrees. And I want to be careful to say that because I'm not trying to classify all Muslims as false as their religion is. I'm not trying to classify all Muslims as, uh, as, as terrorist extremists. So those are kind of, the, that's just kind of a, a general sketch of the, of the um, Islamic world. Now, let me show you um, just a, a kind of a map here. So just to give you a sense of what we're talking about here. Um, oh, it takes a second for that to turn on. I'm sorry. That'll turn on. There it is. Coming soon. One screen, two screens. Okay, mine. I stand here awkwardly, and let's, uh, let's talk about how embarrassing the Chargers' loss to the Cowboys was on Monday night. But um, I want to give you a sense of the mirrors of the map right there geographically to give you a sense um, so we're talking about Israel right here, this tiny little nation. And then you're talking about it's being really just surrounded by Egypt, a major uh, Islamic nation, Jordan, Syria, obviously Turkey, Iran, Iraq, um, and Saudi Arabia. And so, uh, so I, I just want to make the point that you have Israel right here, and you sort of think of, all of these nations being against Israel, and that is certainly true, but I want to say to varying degrees, so there are Muslims that would say, um, we disagree with Israel, but we will, we're willing to live with, with Israel peacefully. Um, and let's also say that 
we, we tend to, in the West, just think of all of these Arab nations as monolithically sort of being on the same sheet of music, and that is absolutely not the case. So, for example, Saudi Arabia is primarily Sunni, and Iran is pro primarily Shiite, and there's a tremendous amount of tension between these two countries. Those are major, major powers, and that's a, that's a, that's a powder keg. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, very um, tenuous situation. So then let's, um, let me go to then... Now to Israel and to think about Palestine. What it, when, we, when we use the word Palestine, sometimes we're just kind of referring to this whole region geographically. But when you talk about, so here obviously in the white, is in this kind of area here, this is, this is Israel. And this was um, basically hammered out in the peace treaties coming out of World War II. And then there's been a few wars between Israel and their Arab neighbors, 1967 in particular, and then one in the 70s where Israel took back some land. But here you have this little place right here, this little strip, that's, that's Gaza, okay? That's where this recent attack was launched from. And then this, this area called the West Bank, which by the way, Jerusalem's right on the border, so you got like East and West Jerusalem. These two browned out areas, the West Bank and Gaza, this is where Palestinians live. And Palestinians, that is an ethnic designation. That's like saying a Jordanian or an Egyptian or an Iraqi or a Syrian. They are a particular ethnic subgroup of the Arabs. And they are a very small group of people that uh, compared to their Arab brothers and sisters in other bigger countries. And um, uh, I, I, as best I can tell, uh, the Palestinians are kind of the runt of the Arab world. Um, they, they, are not, they, they are not treated well. They have been treated very poorly by Jordan and by Syria. And um, in some instances, they've been treated poorly by Israel, the average Palestinian. But I would have a lot of sympathy for some of Israel's poor treatment of the Palestinians because a lot of terrorists, especially when we're getting into Hamas here in just a second, come from the Palestinian people. And so some of the mistreatment that Israel, and you hear this in the press, and all you millennials that, that just want to take sides with what just seems to be the most charitable, left-leaning thing because you can't stand conservatives, don't be duped by the fact that, yes, there has been mistreatment of Israel against Palestine, Palestinian peoples to some degree or another, but I would say in large part that's because they're just trying to protect themselves. I'm not saying Israel is 100% blameless, but I'm just saying when a, when, when a, a, a majority of the people that are, 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 are causing terrorist activity in your nation are coming from a particular group of people, it's going to cause you to be more severe with that whole general population, if that makes sense. And I think that's, that's going on a little bit. So that's Palestine. So Gaza is this little strip, this little place within that, that, is, that is occupied by the Palestinians and, and it has a, 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 a very crazy political history. So in Gaza, you're talking about lived thousands and thousands of just regular, decent, lost, but decent Palestinian people. And some of them are actually Christians. Certainly a majority of the vast majority of them are, are, are Muslims. But within that, that Gaza and the West Bank, but let's just kind of focus on Gaza right now, there's been a lot of political turmoil, and over the past, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years, 
uh, a particular radical group within uh, Palestine, within Gaza, called Hamas, which is a radical Islamic terrorist group, has become, was elected to be the governmental sort of ruling faction in Gaza. And they are made up of, of, of uh, a lot of terrorist factions. They, in fact, their word, their, the, the name Hamas uh, means, uh, I can't, I just, I just I didn't write it down, but it's like, um, it's like, in, it's like anger with enthusiasm. So it's a kind of, a kind of jihad uh, sort of mentality uh, that Hamas means. And so Hamas are the ones that have launched these attacks right in this kind of area of, of Israel. Now you may hear the word Hezbollah too, and Hezbollah is, a, um, is, uh, is up in Lebanon. And um, in many ways, the Lebanese share a similar sort of plight with the Palestinians in that they... Um, are kind of smaller, and they don't really have a voice as much in the kind of big boy Arab world, and so they're kind of also runts uh, in the Arab world, but they, um, so they, some of what's going on here in Lebanon, there's an organization called Hezbollah, um, which is similar to Hamas in that they are a ideological, political uh, party that has these um, radical factions within it that is willing to carry out jihad and the destruction and violence against uh, the nation of Israel because they do not want to live peacefully with Israel. They want to eradicate Israel. It's not like they think they got a bad deal in the land sketch out. It's not like they just are angry. They want to, according to their interpretation of their scriptures, they want to eradicate Israel. And so uh, that puts Israel in a tenuous situation. And I would argue, and I'll hopefully make this point a little bit later, maybe just in conclusion, is that there is, all of this region is it's just a geopolitical, historical mess. And but I would say, and, and in a sense, you can sort of put a dot on it and say it starts in, you know, in uh, A.D. 600 or so, or whenever, whenever Muhammad was alive and Islam as a religion, as a false religion, started. But I would say it, th- this animosity towards Israel goes all the way back to Genesis. And the point I think I want to make theologically in just a moment is that although I think we need to do some correction of a modern American Christian evangelical understanding of who Israel is, and I think it's a very important correction, uh, without a doubt, Israel in the Old Testament was God's chosen people, not at the exclusion of the rest of the world, but to be a blessing so that through Israel... And through eventually what would become the seed of Israel, which is Christ, all of the world would be blessed. Now, clearly, Israel, by and large, failed in that mission in the Old Covenant. God didn't fail. He preserved a remnant that became the early church that is now the church, both Jew and Gentile, that are in Christ. But the animosity, the political, and even the ideological animosity that Islam has with Israel today, has as its origin the satanic hatred of the seed of Israel, of Abraham, 
which is all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where he says, I'm going to put enmity, and he says, you, you know, you, you, this seed coming from you, which is Old Covenant Israel and the Old Covenant, and then New Covenant is Christ, that, that you shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Satan hates the redemptive work of God. And, you know, we can talk about the origins of this battle, that battle, what did this start at... Israel hasn't been perfect, of course not, we read, but we don't, we don't need to be convinced that Israel hasn't done everything right. I mean, we have an old time, we, we, got, we got the scriptures, right? That's without, that's what, but the point is, is the origin of all this is a satanic attack against the redemptive purposes of God, which I think Israel, to some degree, in a lot of nuance that I gotta say, still has a part in, a part. Okay, so then back to your, back to your, um, your handout, Understanding Israel Theologically. Now, this is where it gets a little, um, I think we just got to be really, really, we got to really think. And you're, uh, you're free to disagree with me. This is not a uh, closed-handed issue that Christians must agree on. Um, this is not something that I can bind your conscience on and say you must believe this. Like, for example, I can say I think you must believe that Jesus is Lord. I think you must believe that God is triune. Uh, I think you must believe that Jesus is the only way. I don't think this is uh, something that I can say. You must believe that this is what the Bible says about who Israel is, but I think you should. I think you should. But anyway, you're free to disagree with me. But okay, to understand Israel theologically, we need to distinguish between <coughs> ethnic and national Israel in the Old Testament and spiritual true Israel in the New Testament. So letter A there, you know, you, I think we all are, have a sense, and we've been doing a lot of this in Hebrews, just thinking about Israel in the Old Testament, these people that were formed in Genesis 12 through Abraham, and God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you offspring and land and blessing. Okay, And that's kind of all we know. At this point, the promise is kind of unclear. It's cloudy. It's not in HD, which is, I'm just going to give you land and offspring and blessing. And then we see uh, Israel as a nation all the way through their various ups and downs through the Old Testament, ultimately resulting in Christ who comes. And now Christ is the, the, the one true perfect Jew. He is the one that all of Israel has been longing for the, the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, and the perfect king who is now the, the seed that Abraham was promised and that has finally come and has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross, which then leads us into the new covenant. And now, now I want you to understand, and you got the scriptures on the back there of your just kind of in order, it's important now to understand the difference between how the Bible talks about Israel in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant versus the New and the distinctions it will make. So now this is what Paul says. As a result of Jesus coming, as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross to fulfill the promises to Israel in a spiritual sense and a real sense on the cross and to make a people for himself, now this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but God. So this is a radical thing. I mean, we read this, and of course, we're like, oh, yeah, praise God. But this is a radical thing for an ethnic Jew, Paul, to say he's making a transition in redemptive history now. This is the first time really in the Bible, I think, in this, in this, in this, in this time period, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is redefining, he's, he's clarifying for us now who Israel is in the unfolding plan of God. Previously in the Old Testament, it was ethnic national Israel. And now Paul, in the unfolding plan of God, is giving us more clarity on who Israel is at this state in redemptive history. And he's saying, no, no, now what it means to be a Jew isn't to be one outwardly merely by circumcision or ethnicity or born of the flesh, but to be a Jew inwardly to be born by the Spirit. And then in Romans chapter 9, that famous chapter, he takes up this issue because he is anticipating. This is important to understand the context of Romans chapter 9. Paul, a Jew, is speaking to Jewish Christians or just Gentile Christians who were tempted to believe and look at, okay, Paul, you're preaching this gospel about how Jesus came to, for, and he's from, he's from the old covenant people. But the objection that Paul is, has in his mind in Romans chapter 9 is, is all these Gentiles may be saying to Paul, well, wait a minute. This great Savior that you're talking about, he couldn't even save his own people. It, because it seems like a vast majority of them rejected him. And so if, if all of his own people rejected him, why should we accept him? That's the objection that Paul is anticipating that's in the back of his mind at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. Really, the objection is, wait a minute, Paul. God's redemptive purposes have failed because the vast majority of ethnic Israel did not accept Jesus. You understand? That's the, that's, and so this is what Paul says. This is Paul's answer to that. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness, uh, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He loved his people. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, meaning ethnic Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises in the Old Testament. To them, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, J Jacob, and Joseph. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. Okay, so he's just saying, hey, I love my people. All this, all, the Messiah came from them. But listen to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, because here's what Paul says, for not all who are descended from Israel, belong to Israel. Now, to help us understand that statement, because that's a massively important statement to understand the difference between the Old and New Covenant, let me insert a couple clarifying words. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from ethnic Israel belong to true Israel or spiritual Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, meaning ethnically, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, the children of faith, Jew and Gentile, that are trusting in Christ. He, he, he elaborates more in Galatians chapter 3. What does he say in Galatians 3? Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So remember the promise 
to the sons of Abraham in Genesis is that to the sons, to Abraham, I'll give you, I'll give you blessing, I'll give you promise, I'll give you uh, 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 seed, and I'll give, you, I'll give you land. And who are the sons of Abraham? Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith, whether Jew or Gentile, are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, and he's making the point that even Abraham was made righteous by his faith, not by his ethnicity. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So can you see it? In a sense, Old Testament Israel, when the scriptures talk about Israel in the Old Testament, it's ethnic national Israel. But when we get into the New Covenant, ethnic national Israel has given us Christ, who's the one true law-abiding righteous Jew who fulfills all the promises. And now all those that are trusting in the promise, which is realized in Christ, are now, whether Jew or Gentile, the sons of faith. And they are true Israel not by ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus. He's the realization of the promise that was made to Israel all those years past. Do you see that? And Paul says, he goes on and he says, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So when, so think about this. That the, when, when God makes a promise to Abraham and to his offspring, something that is still yet in his loins, so to speak, the promise is not to Abraham's fleshly descendants, but to those descendants of faith that would ultimately come through Abraham. Yes, who started out by the flesh. They were physical children of Abraham that eventually became Ishmael and Isaac, Ishmael of the flesh, Isaac of the promise. And then this starts this line towards, towards the Messiah, and Jesus is the realization of that. And now, who are the inheritors of the promise? Not those that are ethnically Jew. This is what Paul the Jew just said, but those who are by faith in Christ. So who is the rightful heir of the promise? Jesus and only Jesus. He's the central, he's the, he's the guiding interpretive principle of all of the Bible. All, that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 or 2 or somewhere in there, he says all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And so Jesus is the controlling principle of all of scripture, not ethnic Israel. So, do you, do, am I making my point there that we have to distinguish between ethnic and national Israel? So, then, letter B, back to the front page. What are some implications for the Old Testament promises to Israel? Okay? Now, this is important. Okay? Now, I want you, if you grew up listening to men that love the Lord, but who love to talk about fulfilled prophecy, and they would have lots of charts... And every time, you know, there was some sort of albino cow born in Israel, they freaked out and think that Jesus is coming back or whatever, all into this stuff. I'd, if you were given to that type of preaching growing up, I want you to inhale through your nose and exhale through your mouth and relax, okay? And I just want you to hear me out on this. This has some major implications for the Old Testament promises to Israel. I want you to understand typology, Okay? 
in a broad sense, think of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant as the shadow and the New Covenant as the substance. The law is the shadow. The gospel is the substance. It's the, it's the reality. It's the, it's, the, it's the living, it's the, it's, the, it's the fulfillment of the promises. So, the land promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 13, 15, and 17, where God says, I will give to you this land as an everlasting possession. Remarkably, that theme of Israel, ethnic Israel, inheriting a specific piece of land called Canaan, is not, it's not even mentioned in the New Testament. It, because the, the, the page of redemptive history has turned. The old covenant promise of the land was a shadow that was pointing to the spiritual reality of Christ and the church and the Old Testament shadow of the physical land of Canaan is realized in the church, not in a, a little patch of dirt in the Mediterranean, but in the whole world, the new heavens and the new earth, everything that is Christ's. And so let me show you that from Scripture. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. I don't have that on. Oh, yeah, I do. On the back, I think. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so do you see here in Paul's mind, he's just expanded the land promise of this specific place called Canaan in the Old Testament, and he's expanded it to be the whole world. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21, For let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or the life, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The point there is that Jesus reigns over everything. Jesus as the true Jew, the inheritor of the promise. The promise to Jesus is the only rightful inheritor of any promise to Israel because he's the only one that kept the covenant. Is not just a patch of dirt in Palestine, but the world. And oh, by the way, not just the world, but the universe, the new heavens and the new earth, because he is the king of it all and the creator of it all. This, this is how, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is how Jesus speaks of the inheritance of true Israel. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out, of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So I just want to make this point that these promises to Israel in the Old Testament are shadows that are fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament and expanded because, and isn't it a sweet coincidence by the providence of God that this is where we are in Hebrews, because the New Covenant is Better than the old. So the inheritance for true Israel is not a geographical place in the Middle East, but it's the better inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth because new, true Israel is in Christ. The new covenant is better than the old. So the fulfillment of the promise is better than the old. The, the, the substance is better than the shadow. And so I would, I, my theological view is that the land 
and blessing and seed promises to Abraham were temporary shadows that are fulfilled in Christ in true Israel in the New Testament and expanded beyond all our imagination in the new heavens and the new earth. Which may cause us to ask then, where does that leave ethnic Israel today? What's the significance? What's the significance of Israel reconstituting as a nation in 1948? Well, I don't know for sure, but here is my view, because in one sense, here, here's what I, here, I want you to understand the pastoral sort of tension that I have. In one sense, I want to guard you from the understandable but I think ill-informed notion that a lot of Christians have that they think, well, we just got to stand with Israel politically. Because the Bible says those who bless Israel, God will bless. That's in Genesis chapter 12. That's the part of the Abrahamic blessing. You know, bless, those, who st- those who bless you, I will bless. And so we think, you know, goodness, I, 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 because I know America's not perfect, Israel, but we got to stand with Israel. Now, I want to say, I think by and large that's true politically, 99.9% of the time, but that's not theologically what that means. Because I think what happens is a lot of good, well-meaning, conservative Christians view political support for national Israel today as just almost kind of a charismatic, like almost prosperity gospel rabbit's foot. Like, boy, we can do whatever we want, but as long as we're blessing, as long as we're siding with Israel political, politically, God said it. He's bound to bless America because we're siding with Israel politically. But do you see, I don't think that's a right interpretation of the promise of the Old Covenant. It's not realized in ethnic Israel today. It's realized in, the, in Christ. And it's not just a patch of dirt in the Middle East. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's better than that. And so we can't use political support, which I want to stress, I think 99.9% of the time we should do for Israel for lots of good reasons, which I'm going to get to in just a second. Let's not entangle that with a theological argument from Genesis chapter 12, because that's not the theological point that Genesis 12 is making. It's not saying, you can do whatever you want, America or Canada or Great Britain, but as long as you support Israel politically 2,000 years from now, you're good. What? That doesn't fit theologically with anything gospel-minded, right? Okay, does that, am I making sense there? Okay. All right, have I, am I getting a little, little too much, Miranda? All right, my daughter-in-law is looking at me like, easy, easy killer. Okay. Because, because I want you to understand, because I think what you can miss there is the gospel. In a sense, you can kind of think that Israel's good because, just because they're Israel. And this is, the, this is the worst side of like dispensational theology that kind of splits up the church in Israel into two tracks. And there are some people that would call themselves Christians that actually think that, you know, Israel's hope is the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of the sacrificial system. And that some people, noted, noted teachers that have had some fame in our country in Christendom actually teach a kind of two-track salvation. That's anti-gospel. It's a total misunderstanding of the, of the redemptive plan of God. And so I don't want you to... What, what Israel needs, yes, by and large, need, they need our political support, absolutely. But they, they, they don't need to think that they're okay with God just because they're Jews, ethnically. They need the gospel. That's what they need. 
just like in, in, in every Gentile it needs. Okay, but what's the significance of national ethic Israel today? And this is just me. I'm, I'm stepping out on a, a speculation branch. I'm going to take a scripture that I know is true, and I'm going to try and kind of massage it into what I think God may be doing now, but I'm not for certain. Okay, so what about ethnic Israel? Well, Paul... Paul's anticipating that question too because he's talking to the Gentiles primarily in Romans. In Romans chapter 9, he's handled this objection. Well, you say that Messiah is for his people, but he, he, he failed by and large, it seems like, in, in saving his people. So why should we believe him? And I just read, Paul said, no, no, he didn't fail because God has always had a people, and it's a people by faith. It's a people by faith, not by ethnicity. So a, a, a true Jews, even the true Israel was like Abraham and David and, and Isaac. It was, it was, and all these unbelieving Jews were never really part of this remnant that God has preserved that now leads to Christ. It is now the church. So God has not failed. But now in Romans chapter 11, he's anticipating another objection where people might say, and he's maybe speaking to his kinsmen, his Jews, they might be saying, well, God, is, is God done with Israel? I mean, gosh, is God heartless like that? Like, what? Does God have anything to do with these people that he invested so much in, in in all of these years in the Old Testament? And I think Paul's answer is yes. Romans chapter 11, back to the back there, he's taking up this question, what about ethnic, what about unbelieving ethnic Israel now and in the future? And he's saying to the Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. He's saying, don't be, don't be, you Gentiles, don't get, don't get proud that you by grace have been grafted into true Israel by sovereign grace, by God's election. I want you to know what happened to Israel. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. You've got to read this in context. What he means there is, at this point in the argument, ethnic Israel. A partial hardening has come upon ethnic Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God, in his providence, has hardened ethnic Israel's heart until the fullness of all the Gentile believers would come into true Israel, Christ the church. And then verse 26, he says, and this is the hope for Israel. And in this way, meaning the sovereign grace of God, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Okay, I want you to look at your Bible and look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, the controversial phrase is, who is all Israel there? There's a couple dominant interpretations through the history of the church. Some say, well, Paul is just speaking about all of spiritual Israel. So he's just basically saying all of the elect will eventually be saved. All of the elect will eventually be saved. And nobody would disagree with that. I mean, that, that, that's true. But I don't think in context that fits with the flow of Paul's logic here because he's making a distinction between ethnic Israel and the hardening of their heart. So in context, in verse 25, he's talking about ethnic Israel. They've been, in a sense, hardened or cut off because of their unbelief. All the Gentiles are coming back in now. And he's saying, in this same way as all of the Gentiles coming in by grace, now all Israel or all of believing Jews in the future, 
God will graft back in. You might say, well, that just means all the church. Well, he's, I think he's distinguishing between all of the Gentiles and all of Israel, which I think clarifies that he has in mind all believing Jews that God will be gracious to at some point, I think, in the future and graft into the church. So let me, let me uh, because I'm a frustrated artist, let me try and draw this for you to help you understand this. Okay, let's see. This is the bottom here. This is the beginning. This is Genesis 12, okay? And this is Israel. And I'm going to use the analogy of a tree because that's the picture in Romans, the grafting, the breaking off of branches of unbelief, okay? So here we have Israel, all right? And we got, this is, this is believing Israel right here, okay? This is, um, you know, this is Abraham. This is Moses. This is David. This is the prophets. Okay, this is, this is, uh, this is the remnant. Okay, this is, this is believing Israel. But you also had, obviously, you had, you know, you had, on the, you had, this is a tree trunk. That's kind of the middle. That's the real tree, but you still had, you know, you had a bunch of unbelieving Jews too. Unbelieving Jews. Okay? But within the bottom of this trunk being formed now, Israel, you have this remnant, okay? And then all this is leading to the promise that is, let me, let me just to kind of help us see it here, let me, uh, let me make this red, the cross, okay? Now Jesus has come. He's the one, the promised one from all the way down from Israel, down here from Abraham. The seed, the seed has come. Jesus has come. And he has, he is the inheritor of all the promises to Israel. Okay, he is, he's the one true Jew. Okay, now, this is a tree trunk growing here. And now, unbelieving Israel has been cut off. Okay, they're cut off in unbelief. And now the tree continues to grow. And Jesus is resurrected. And what we have here is the tree continues to grow. And this is the, this is the, uh, this is the early church. And this, it's important for you to understand here, this early church. This is, let me draw a branch here. Or a big, it's a bush, but it's a branch. You get what I'm saying? This is, this, this is all, these are, these are ethnic Jews. The 120 gathered together on the day of Pentecost, all Jew. The 12 apostles, all Jew. The early church in Acts chapter 2, all Jew. These are Jews, right? So this is the, the remnant is continuing, right? The remnant is continuing, okay? Now what happens is the Holy Spirit comes, empowers these Jewish apostles, and now another branch starts to form on this tree. And this branch is the Gentiles that are coming in. We're talking like Acts 8 and onward to today. In fact, most of us in this room, I don't know if there are any ethnic Jews in here. Um, if you are, you're part of this, this you're, you're, you're a line of these, the 120 and 12. But here we are. We are, 
we are part of the, we are part of the, we're part of the church. We're this today, the Gentiles, Gentiles are coming in. And guess what? This is beautiful. Jesus has grafted us into the church. This is, this is, um, this is Ephesians 2 right here. He has made between, he has made them one new man. Right here, right here. This is Ephesians 2. The enmity between Jew and Gentile, he's made them one new man in Christ. Right? So this is the, right now this is the New Testament church. This is, this is, this is true Israel right here. This is ethnic Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. Because who is the inheritor of the promises? Jesus. Jesus is the head. He's the head of the church. He's the head, and this is the body. But oh, but oh, but don't, let's not forget Romans chapter 11. I think what Romans chapter 11 is saying is that, is that, is that God in his kindness, Romans 11, verse 25 and 26, says that all Israel, and I think that's referring to whether it's trickling through the centuries or whether it is a future, a future evangelism on a great scale, I don't think it means that every ethnic Jew alive before Jesus comes is eventually going to trust in Jesus, but I think it means that all of the elect amongst ethnic Israel will come to him, and so to whatever degree, and I'm just surmising here, I do not have a Bible verse to connect 1948 and the reconstitution of, ethnic, of national Israel as a nation to this, I'm just surmising that maybe God, maybe part of what Romans 11, 25, and 26, this regrafting in of this broken off branch. In fact, you know what? Actually, better, yeah, it's just this branch, this branch of all Israel. What's going on here is that God in his glory is, is going to bring about a, a great multitude of evangelism amongst Jews, or at least amongst all the elect, amongst the ethnic Jews, whether over time or not. And I think bringing them all together in one place might be part of how he does that. I don't know. I don't have a verse. I'm just saying, I think there's some significance in, in, in Israel. So in one sense, I want to push against the dispensational fascination and obsession with Israel but in another sense, I want to say it's not insignificant because I think it might be part of what God um, does. And so what we have here now is we have, uh, we, have, we have all of the redeemed, all those that the Father has given to the Son, and they, they inherit the promise. They, 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 their promise, you know what their promise is now? Their promise is not, is not physical Canaan. It's the, it's the new heavens and the new earth. And it's, it's, it's Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And, and we, the spiritual Israel, spiritual Israel, Israel, spiritual Israel, is all the people, the true ones that, who is Israel? It's Christ. He's the only true Jew. And so who's in Christ? All that believe in him by faith, Jew and Gentile. And so who are the promises? Who will inherit the promises? All those in Christ. Spiritual Israel. The people of God. And, and that's who the promise is to.
So concluding thoughts, I'm going a little long here. So, on support for Israel, well, um, I think by and large, absolutely, God is not done with Israel yet. And America should support Israel, I think, a vast majority of the time because they are sane and because they are uh, peace-loving people by and large and because they have the political arguments on their side by and large. And we should support Israel like we should support Britain and Australia and Canada and and any other peace-loving democratic um, nation that treats their people well. And as Christians... We should be interested because even though the accent of redemptive history is on Christ, not on Israel, and even so, though the inheritors of the promises is true Israel, not physical Israel, there does even in the New Testament seem to be a priority. Even when Paul is preaching the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek, I don't believe God is done with ethnic Israel yet. And so I think we should certainly Pray for Israel, support her politically, but what Israel needs most is the gospel. So that's on support for Israel. Secondly, having said that, I don't want anybody in here that may be of Palestinian descent or anybody that might listen to this that might be of Arab descent to think that we don't have great compassion on people that are innocent, and I don't mean theologically or innocent in a Roman sort of sense, but I'm just talking about innocent in this particular conflict, just regular civilians. When we support Israel, I would not want certainly any Christian Arabs in the land to think that that doesn't mean that we are not very compassionate upon them, or just any peace-loving people that our heart doesn't break, that they're getting caught up in this as well. But friends, I think what's primarily happening, and again, I'm not saying Israel is perfect, But Hamas and Hezbollah are wicked, satanic, terrorist organizations. And all this stuff that you hear on the news, maybe some liberal news outlets that talk about how Israel killed some civilians, well, it's because, from what I understand, these wicked terrorists don't care about their own people, and they're doing their base of operations out of civilian places, so they're, in a sense, forcing Israel to kill their people that they don't care about to give Israel bad press because they don't really care about their people. They care about their satanic impulses to destroy Israel. And so how can you, in a sense, fight fair with that type of ideology? And that's not to... I mean, war is wicked. Many of you men in this room have been in war and you've seen terrible things that happen on both sides. But for some college student at Harvard to traipse around in a, in a Hamas sort of, to, to, to side with Hamas because they're virtue signaling because they couldn't think their way out of a wet paper sack is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's not to say that Israel's perfect in this. It's just to say life is complicated, war is complicated, politics are pop- complicated. Has Israel messed up sometimes? Certainly. But by and large, it's a no-brainer. They're being attacked and they have every right to defend themselves. And America should do everything they can to support Israel. And I, so, so if you're a young person that, you know, your Facebook friend puts on some little, you know, little thing on Facebook about supporting, you know, a stand against the Israeli brutality. That's just liberal 
ideological garbage. And it's, 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 it's a kind of PR for the satanic impulse. So don't fall trapped to that junk and just don't do it. And don't get your theology off of Facebook and Twitter. Okay. And then just on condemning evil. Um, like, don't be afraid to, like, don't, like, we just, we, we, we caveat ourselves to death. Oh, yeah, well, what about, I heard Israel blew up a hospital, and it, well, okay, I mean, I, well, we could, you could caveat everything to death. You could caveat what America did. I mean, let's talk about Hiroshima. I mean, that's a tough one. But, but, but we give ourselves passes on stuff, and, we, and, and the liberal media, look, don't be afraid to just say blatantly, without caveat, without nuance, that, that terrorists and this wicked Islamic, and, and it's okay to use that, it, it's, a, it's, it's satanic, and it's, it's, a, it's an outflowing of the devil's hatred of God's redemptive purposes. But let's also say that we love all peoples and we hate that any innocent person, regardless of their ethnicity, would get killed. We hate that. Who, who, can't two things be true at the same time? Can't we say that we think Israel's being terribly treated and maligned internationally for decades, but also we have great compassion on Arab civilians, even if they're Muslims? Of course we can. And, and wh- why does it have to be, why can't you say both things? Well, because the world wants sound bites, because they want to they split the baby down the middle and they demand your full allegiance because they don't really care about thinking, they care about just winning the argument. And that's a terrible way to do politics or theology or citizenry. Um, all right, I'm, that's all I got. <laughs> so those are my thoughts. Any questions or comments? Before we pray for Israel. Yeah, make sure the microphone's on, uh, Carolyn. Yep, it is. Good. Okay. Yep. Uh, straighten me out. Yep. It's difficult. I come from India, remember? <laughs> India, California. Yeah. Okay. Um, you say that... 0-4 against Central during my high school years. India yeah. was 0-4. We beat you every year. Anyway, go ahead. He even played can, tiddlywinks and beat my school, can, too. Can, continue. 0-4. Um, okay, you say that... God is not done with Israel. On yeah. what do we base that? Mm-hmm. And lest we unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament, because it's a full mm-hmm. revelation, mm-hmm. going back to Romans 4.13. Wait, what was that first question? You're saying, you're saying Romans 11. Say, state that first question again, please. I haven't asked it yet. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. Did I? <laughs> I thought you said something about, I thought you had a question about Romans 11. Oh, man, what did uh, I say? Oh, no, going back to, mm. no, Romans 4.13. Mm. Well, you, you said God is not done with Israel. I, I don't think so, yeah. Which that's, is that's where just, you I'm, got Romans 11. Yeah, okay. yeah. Out of your mouth, not mine. Okay, Romans 4.13. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we're talking about the law, we're talking about that absolute shadow of the reality that we have in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. the old covenant of the law, which was never intended to be eternal. Yes. But if we go back to Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17, uh-huh. that's the Abrahamic covenant, uh-huh. which was based on a promise. Uh-huh. I mean, Abraham was asleep when God cut the covenant. Yeah. So is that where you're saying that God is not finished with Israel? But are you saying that that promise of the land no. is null and void because only Christ inherits it? 
No, I don't say, I wouldn't say it's null and void. I would say it's realized in its fulfillment in the church. But, the land promise? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the New Testament uh, picks up the land promise. The New Testament doesn't pick up the land promise, but the, in the Old Testament, that was an everlasting covenant that God cut. Yep, and I think it's, I think, I don't think it's, I think that is, um, I think that that language everlasting is realized spiritually. I think that's a shadow that points to the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. So I do think it is literally fulfilled, but in the new heavens. In the and new the heavens new and the new earth. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, I, I think I think that's the way I think that's the way the Bible treats. I think that's the difference between circumcision and baptism. I think the new covenant is better. I think that that's why I don't think we should baptize infants. Because we, the new covenant is better, and it's it's more it's more clarity to it, and so. But but I want to be careful, and reiterate that what I am doing with Romans chapter eleven verses twenty five and twenty six is I think in the theological category of speculation. Um, I'm 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 uh, in regards to connecting it decisively to Israel in 1948 and now as a national political entity. I, I, I just am surmising. I don't, I don't think you can draw a straight line at all. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, Oops, sorry. What would the world be like if Sarah had never asked Abraham to lie down with Hagar? Yeah. The slave yeah. girl? Yeah which gave birth to Ishmael, yep. which is the father of the yep. Arab nations and yep. Islam and everything mm -hmm. today. What mm -hmm. it would be like if she had not shortcutted God and got impatient waiting for Isaac to be born, born. and because uh, God had already promised her a child, yeah. but they got impatient and yeah. So if Ishmael had never been born, what would it be like? Well, let's back it up from Genesis 16 and Ishmael, and let's back it up to Genesis chapter 3. That's a great question, brother. But I think your question, at the, at the root of your question, which is a great question, is actually really, what is God's, why would God even allow sin in the first place? So let's back it up to the garden. Um, but to answer your question more specifically, I would just say Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. And so uh, my view theologically, as from a Reformed view, from a high view of providence, is that Abraham and Sarah's mistake, Sarah's scheme, with Hagar, her mistress, that brought us Ishmael, is all under God's sovereign plan. And it gets to me then to Romans chapter 9, you know, where he says that he's created some vessels for honor and some for dishonor, for the display of his glory. It would be a different world, no doubt, <laughs> to answer your question sort of specifically, but it's not like it hasn't, it's snuck up on God. It's all, all of history even the worst of it, has unfolded according to God's plan for the maximum display of his glory. And Paul says in Romans 8 that the, the surpassing worth of glory will far outweigh 
anything, any evil that we face through the ages. Yeah, Dr. Love. When it comes to, you know, when it comes to the Harvard student, to me, I, I, I've come to expect that. Um, and if anybody went to Harvard, I apologize, but I think you just paid too much for an education. <laughs> um, but when it comes to Bible-believing Christians and even pastors, I've been particularly disturbed to see them take up this, uh, the pro-Palestine rally and, yeah. and all the virtue signaling. Yeah. What are we as Christians to make of that? Is it, yeah. are they deceived? Are they false teachers? That's, that's where I've been struggling. Uh, yeah, that's a great question, Dylan. Um, and I want to say, like, uh, uh, yeah, who, I mean, I want the best for the Palestinian people. Um, but I think our nation, and this is me, um, I'm a grandfather now, so I can be grumpy. I, I just think we have become weak and I think the highest social collateral in our country is to come across like you really understand and you really, really care. And so this faux sympathy, this faux virtue, I think you saw it in some of the racial stuff. And of course, who, 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 what, what, what Christian, it, it's, it's kind of a bleeding heart. Um, I just always want to be the contrary voice for the sake of appearing virtuous. And so I think social virtue and appearing like you have social virtue above these angry people is, has become the highest commodity and it's become a kind of counterfeit um, God for some people and it's wicked. Now, that's not in a, that's not in a vacuum because the, the conservative right has made an idol out of power and all this kind of stuff. And so maybe this is a bit of a, of a reaction to all of the idols of the sort of, you know, fundamentalist right. I, I'm, I'm, uh, we need to think about that. That's possible. But an overreaction to a wrong reaction doesn't make the overreaction right. I think all of us have gaps and, and, and limitations, and that's why we need Jesus, and that's why we need to think carefully about these things. That's a good question. I hope it answers it. Yeah. And so when I criticize Harvard students, I'm not just, I, I hope you don't hear like some independent like, I'm just saying, be, like, be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. Of course we, we want to stand with any innocent people and, and we're, we're sympathetic to them. But let's not just, you know, let's not say dumb things because we don't understand the scriptures. Yes, Ms. Everard. So I have a question. I know this, uh, this is kind of confusing to me. but Me too. Um, people in the Old Testament like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, yeah. um, who believed in God, but were before Jesus came, do you think they went to heaven and the, yes. the prophets and everyone? Ooh, that's a good question. Yes. Here's, here's an analogy that I'd give you. And I was just talking to you about this, Andrew, a couple weeks ago with your son. Um, here's what I would, here's, here's, here, here's how I want you to think of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the promises to Abraham. Think of my hand as like a flower that has not budded, okay? And the promise is this, fl it's this flower that hasn't budded. And inside those buds, before they're closed up, there's, there's, there's something. We don't see it yet. And God tells Abraham, trust me, go, follow me, right? And it's, it's the gospel. It's God's word. It's the truth. It's the message of salvation. Not fully bloomed yet. Not fully bloomed yet. But it is, it's the bud of the gospel. But it contains the, it's, it's the gospel. And now as redemption unfolds into the new covenant, we see the the gospel fully flowered into Christ. But Abraham was trusting in, in as much as he could see, which was the bud, we now have the flower. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, which we're going to get to soon, it talks about Moses 
as he, that he was, when Moses obeyed God in standing against Egypt, it said he, 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 he esteemed the reward of Christ. So the interpretation of the New Testament writer is that Moses was actually trusting in Christ when he was following God to lead his people out of Egypt. And he didn't really know the name Christ. He didn't see Christ like we do, but he trusted in the bud and as much as he can see that now has blossomed into the flower of the gospel. So all those, John 14, 6, everyone that comes to the Father must come to the Father through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anybody that comes to Jesus, uh, whether old or new covenant, has come through the good news of the Son. Some it was the bud. For us it's the flower, but it's all through Christ. Great. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. I had sort of one more question. Yeah. So, like... Jewish people that don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, like now, what, like, since Jesus is God, would they not go to heaven? (coughs) Nobody that does not trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins goes to heaven. (coughs) There is no, this this is the testimony of the Jewish apostles in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no other name but Christ. And the argument of Paul in Galatians is that these, <coughs> excuse me, these Jewish so-called Christians are coming into the Galatian church and they're saying, yeah, Jesus is fine, but you have to observe the law. He says, you, he, says you are, he calls them an anathema. He curses them. He says, that's another gospel. To trust in anything but Christ is to be cursed or to add anything to Christ is to be cursed. And so... Any Jew or any Gentile that does not... I mean, there's only two types of people in the world, ultimately. Those that trust in Christ and those that do not. And so, yes, a Jewish person, even if they can trace their lineage to Abraham himself, if they don't trust in Christ, they are part of unbelieving Israel that gets cut off. And only those who are the true sons of Abraham, which is true Israel, are those that trust in the promise to Abraham, which was the bud that has now flowered into the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, thank Great you. question, great question. Anybody else? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh-oh, he's got, he's got an open Bible. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, to Thai 1948. Say, say it again. That Thai is the... Oh. Israel becoming a nation in uh-huh. 1948. Okay. Uh, Zechariah chap, uh, chapter 8, mm-hmm. uh, verse 7 through 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from all the countries, from the east and from the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. In another place... Yeah, and I would say that's fulfilled in the day of Pentecost, in, in, in the, the nations coming, and I would say that's fulfilled in the, in the first century. Um, is what I would think. And so I wouldn't necessarily trace 1948 to that because I think that's, that, that promise is realized in the New Covenant. There's a similar verse. Yeah. I believe it's in um, um, it's not, uh, Ezekiel, mm-hmm. I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reads similarly, mm-hmm. but it says, I'm not doing this for your sake, Israel, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'm doing it for my own sake. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, ultimately, God does everything for and his glory. Yeah. Which is, yeah, right, I believe right. he's also yeah, pointing yeah, to 1948. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so I would say that I think all of the promises prophetically to Israel in the prophets are realized and expanded in the church. Um, so, okay, it's getting late. It's 7.48. I've gone way past time. I'll stick around and answer any questions that you have. Um, and let me pray. And let me pray for the peace of Israel, the peace of Jerusalem, God's grace to all involved there. Lord, I pray uh, for Israel. Uh, we pray uh, certainly for her physical safety and for a quick end to the hostilities. But mostly we p- pray for her spiritual uh, regrafting into Christ. We pray for our Arab friends. We pray for Palestinian Christians and Arab Christians in the area, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would cause their witness to grow and that you'd keep them safe. We pray for the innocent civilians, um, innocent in a political sense anyway. Um, We pray for just civilian Muslims, just peace-loving Arabs and Muslims that are caught up in this. We pray protection. We pray that for a minimum amount of loss of life to these people. We pray that none, Lord, we just pray for your grace and protection. We pray for wisdom for uh, military leaders, for political leaders. And we pray that we as Christians, because we can think, Lord, what can we do? We pray that we would just be better equipped, that we would trust you more, that we would not be shaken by these things, but that we would see that You have declared the end from the beginning, as Isaiah said, you said through Isaiah. Nothing can thwart your hand. And Lord, we pray for peace in this region. We pray for the salvation of all of Israel, whatever that means in Romans 11. And we pray for a great mass evangelism amongst both Arab and Jewish people and America. That's our heart. We, we, we We ask for that. And if, Lord, if there's anything that I've said tonight that wasn't right, let it fall to the ground and be forgotten. If there's anything that I said tonight that wasn't just in the right tone or I got a little carried away, give grace to my brothers and sisters. Let them kind of excuse that, I pray, or rebuke me later in the spirit of kindness. But anything that is true and good and helpful and right in the redemptive plan of the gospel, Lord, let it embolden us to be people that are confident that know whom we have believed and are persuaded that he is able to keep that which he's entrusted, we've entrusted to him until that day. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming.